This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is a special edition today of Radio Parallax, in which... For both segment two and segment three, we're going to speak with the same guest. Our distinguished guest today is going to be Vincent Bugliosi, the former district attorney from Los Angeles and best-selling author. As far as we're concerned, Vincent Bugliosi's The Betrayal of America, How the Supreme Court Undermined the Constitution and Chose Our President, is one of the great uh, pieces of uh, literature that came out of the fiasco of Election 2000. We uh, think rather highly of Mr. Bugliosi on this program, but it is curious to note that uh, in numerous instances on this show in the past, we've talked about the matter of the assassination of our 35th president, not necessarily from the Warren Commission perspective. But Vincent Bugliosi has been on a book tour to promote his latest book, his 1,600-page tome titled Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. We feel certain segments two and three today will hold your interest. Stay tuned for those. On this date in history, which is May 31st in 1889, the town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania was nearly wiped off the map as heavy rain and a neglected dam combined to cause one of the worst floods in American history. More than 2,209 people die. Six years later, May 31st, 1895, and what must uh, surely be an epic day uh, for those who uh, like breakfast cereal, John Harvey Kellogg of Battle Creek, Michigan, filed a U.S. patent for flaked cereals and the process of preparing same. On this date in 1977, after three years of construction, the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline running from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez was completed. And finally, on May 31st, 1994, the United States announced it will no longer aim nuclear missiles at targets in the former Soviet Union. As far as I know, 13 years later, we still have plenty of missiles pointed at targets in the Soviet Union, but uh, that's a topic for another day. And our quote of the day comes from Hollywood producer Joseph E. Levine, who once said, You can fool all the people all the time if the advertising is right and the budget's big enough. Our stat of the day comes from Business Week. says that 82% of Mexican companies in a recent survey report they're having trouble filling jobs. Accountants, factory workers, and laborers are the most in demand. Our quip of the day comes, oddly enough, from Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant movement, who once said, I'd rather be governed by a wise Turk than a stupid Christian. And no, we, we here at Radio Parallax have no evidence that Martin Luther was using biblical prophecy to look ahead to contemporary America. Now, for our joke of the day, last week we couldn't resist quoting from Radar Magazine's Very Worst Places to Die and the article titled Wrong Exit. And uh, I think we're going to select a few more of those for today's program. As we mentioned in last week's program, uh, regarding this article by Mike Sachs and Ted Travelstead, we're all going to go at some time, and we're all going to be somewhere when we do it. But uh, there are some places that are worse than others, such as 
the VIP box at an outlawed truck and trailer pull. Another bad place to go. Super Bowl Stadium performing a precarious handstand for the Jumbotron. And uh, surely among the very worst places to die, moments after completing the last sentence of your hilarious prank suicide note. <laughs> Another bad place to go. Reclining in a purple box after volunteering to be the magician's assistant. <laughs> Tell you what, one place I wouldn't be caught dead dying. Front row at Tony Robbins' Unleash the Power Within seminar. Another bad place to die? Williamsburg, Virginia, head in stocks, wearing tri-corner hat. And I see we have a tie here for the final two items in the very worst places to die. Between on stage at an acting workshop, having just grabbed the improv baton, equaled by... At your boss's daughter's bat mitzvah, breakdancing in the horror circle. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for George Orwell. After German authorities revealed they have compiled a database of scent samples from previously arrested anti-globalization protesters ahead of next month's G8 summit. In the event of a riot, say the authorities, the database will help police dogs seek out the likely instigators. It was a bad week last week for Greenpeace after the U.S. Coast Guard telephone number set up so that the public could suggest ways of rescuing uh, our two injured humpback whales that were working their way back down the river was evidently hacked into, after which the hacker changed the outgoing message to say that the creatures had been euthanized due to a lawsuit. Of course, it looks as though that whale story has had a happy ending. It looks like they've gone out the Golden Gate. And last week was clearly an ugly week for amateurism when a German couple had to call the fire department after chaining each other up during their first ever bondage session and losing the key to the padlock. Anyway, that's our good, bad, and ugly. From the uh, Only in America file, we have three items this week that I think are worthy of mention. Writing in the Sacramento Bee last week, uh, staff writer Christina Jewett noted that Sacramento library staffers are circulating a petition of no confidence in management decrying what they view as a departure from amassing a rich research collection to pandering to the whims of the YouTube generation. Librarians question administrators' selection of materials, which include six copies of Paris Hilton's Confession of an Heiress autobiography and ten copies of the film Jackass 2. 
Library Administration declined to comment on this, referring questions to the Library Board Chairman, County Supervisor Roger Dickinson. Dickinson said concerns are being aired by a minority of librarians who are resisting the library's efforts to modernize. Apparently, the library's become a hotbed of controversy of late. Uh, it was noted that a librarian who retired in 2003 said this current debate ranges beyond a battle of traditional versus change. It touches on how the change is made. Case in point, the redecoration of the Martin Luther King branch with a Sacramento Kings motif. The decor came after the Maloof Foundation donated computers to the branch. <laughs> what was called a Maloofization of the library, walls were painted purple and cutouts of the King's mascot, Slamson, adorned the walls said the librarian with disgust, you had Slamson looking over the shoulder of a poster of Martin Luther King Jr. And for our friends out in Indiana, we have the following item. The Indianapolis public school system warned parents not to cheer when their child's name is read out at this year's high school graduation ceremonies. A letter from the superintendent, Eugene White, reminds families that attending a graduation ceremony is a privilege, not a right and warns that up to 30 police officers will be present at each ceremony to ensure good order. Graduation is a joyous time, a proud time, and a formal time, writes White. It is not a party. It is not a pep rally. Will someone out there in Indianapolis please slap Eugene White upside the head? And finally, this item I'm going to read because I just have to, have to read you how this is written. Authorities in Minnesota are defending their decision not to issue a gun permit to a blind man. Now, you really wouldn't think they'd be deeply on the defensive over this one now, would you? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm reading on. Carrie McWilliams, 33, already has concealed carry permits from North Dakota and Utah and was therefore surprised when Clay County Sheriff Bill Burquist rejected his application. I had to sign something saying he could safely whatever, said Bagwist, and I felt I couldn't say that of someone who's legally blind. McWilliams, who's appealing the decision, said he aims by means of sound, gravity, and body position. And we're very sorry to report here at Radio Parallax that uh, President Jimmy Carter, former President Jimmy Carter, backed off on his remarks calling the Bush administration the worst in history in its impact on the world. Carter said last week on NBC's Today show that he was responding to a question comparing Bush's foreign policy and Richard Nixon's. I think Richard Nixon had a very good and productive foreign policy, he said, and my remarks were maybe careless or misinterpreted. But I wasn't comparing the overall administration, and I was certainly not talking personally about any president. We're very disappointed. We think that Jimmy Carter should have stuck to his guns. And a couple stories we're only going to mention because we need to do them in greater depth in some future program. Uh, 72-year-old anti-Castro-Cuban exile and former CIA operative Luis Posada Carriles was released on bail uh, late last month and returned to Miami to await trial on immigration fraud charges, not terrorism. This is a man who helped place a bomb on an airline flying between Cuba and Venezuela, which killed 73 people, including several teenage members of Cuba's national fencing team. The Cubans want to put him on trial. The Venezuelans want to put him on trial. But America will not extradite him overseas. And in fact, we're not charging him in relation to that crime. Evidently, because in this case, the victims belong to countries we're not sympathetic with. We'll continue to follow what happens to Luis Posada in future weeks. 
And we would like to note the, uh, the current issue of Popular Science has an article titled, The First Assassin of the 21st Century. It tells the tale of how Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned with polonium-210. Last week, British prosecutors uh, said they have enough evidence to charge former KGB agent Andrei Lugovoy in this case. Russian officials said they would study the indictment, but Russian law does not provide for extradition. It's been noted that almost all the world's polonium is contained in a Russian government lab, and Lugovoy left a trail of polonium radiation all the way back to Russia. Said Alex Goldfarb, a member of the entourage of exiled oligarch Boris Berezovsky, and, which was something that Litvinenko was part of as well, said every reasonable person knows this was a state-sponsored job. Can there be much doubt in this case? Uh, we think not. We have a giant backlog of, uh, of, of uh, local political uh, science and technology stories, but we just don't have time. So let's, uh, let's move from uh, 21st century assassinations to 20th century assassinations and return after a short break to speak with the distinguished author and former prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi about the death of our 35th president, John Kennedy. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. If I ever found myself on trial, today's guest is one man I would not want to see sitting at the district attorney's table. Vincent Bugliosi is a former prosecutor for the Los Angeles DA office. He successfully prosecuted 105 out of 106 felony cases there and 21 out of 21 murder cases, among them Charles Manson. Mr. Bugliosi went on to a career as an author, starting with Helter Skelter, the story of the Manson murder case. It is the best-selling true crime work ever. He hit number one in the New York Times bestseller list twice more in the true crime genre with And the Sea Will Tell, a story of murder among the yachting set, and Outrage, a look at how O.J. Simpson beat the rap despite overwhelming evidence that he was guilty. The Supreme Court ruling in December 2000, halting the vote count in Florida, outraged him. When Mr. Bugliosi wrote about it in The Nation, it drew the largest outpouring of letters and email in the magazine's 136-year history. His subsequent book, the Betrayal of America, How the Supreme Court Undermined the Constitution and Chose Our President, is widely regarded as one of the best summaries of the legal machinations which made George W. Bush president. Mr. Bugliosi's current work reflects 20 years working on the 1963 murder of our 35th president. The book is titled Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Unlike all previous works, this one sets out to examine every aspect of the case. It concludes that the Warren Commission got it right. Lee Oswald and Lee Oswald alone was the perpetrator. We record this one day after Mr. Bugliosi addressed the Distinguished Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. I'm very pleased to say, Vincent Bugliosi, welcome to Radio Parallax. Doug, uh, thank you for having me on your show, and I want to tell your listeners how conscientious you were. You drove from Sacramento to San Francisco just to hear me, and uh, that's not common. So obviously you're a person of... Uh, 
uh, considerable depth, and I'm honored to be on your show. Uh, my first question, sir, this, this is surely the largest single work written about the case, 1.5 million words. How much time did this take? Well, I started working in 1986, Doug, on this case. Uh, I was the, quote, prosecutor of Lee Harvey Oswald in London. Jerry Spence, the famous lawyer from Wyoming, defended Oswald. We had a regular federal jury, a regular federal judge, no script whatsoever, the original Warren Commission witnesses. And we went at it for 21 hours in London, and uh, that experience there led me to write this book because I, I discovered that the very things that the uh, conspiracy theorists confused or can, uh, uh, accused the, uh, the Warren Commission of, i.e., suppressing the truth and distorting the evidence, it was they who were guilty of these things. And I also discovered that all of these conspiracy theories had absolutely no substance to them, yet the vast majority of Americans were believing it, so I decided to write a book. And that was back in 1986. Why is it so long? As you know, it's 1,600 pages, and then there's a CD with another 1,125 pages attached. One reason is that, as you've already alluded to, this is the first book on the assassination ever to cover the entire case. No uh, other book has ever even attempted to cover the entire case. Uh, but there's another reason here, Doug, why this case, uh, why this book is so long. There are two realities in this case. One is that, at its core, this is a very simple murder case. Uh, Chief Justice Warren, when he was the uh, DA in Oakland, uh, uh, he, he looked back on those years and he said, listen, uh, this would have been a two- or three-day murder case and we would have convicted Oswald. Uh, at its core, it's a simple case. Within hours of the shooting in Dealey Plaza, Virtually everyone in Dallas law enforcement knew that Oswald had killed Kennedy, and when they found out what a, what a complete kook he was, uh, they concluded that he had acted, acted alone. That's one reality. The second reality, and probably the main reason why this book is so long, in addition to the fact that it covers the entire case, and that's never been done before, is that as a result, Doug, uh, of the uh, uh, unceasing, unceasing fanatical obsession of literally... I'm not exaggerating, thousands upon thousands of Warren Commission critics and conspiracy theorists from literally around the world, mostly in the United States, of course, who have investigated every single conceivable aspect of this case for close to 44 years and, and made hundreds upon hundreds of allegations. This essentially simple case has been transformed into its present state, and its present state, Doug, is that it's the most complex murder case by far in world history. Nothing even remotely comes close to it. To give you an example, in manuscript form, uh, one of my endnotes, I'm not talking about the main text now, just one endnote on acoustics ran to about 120 pages with about 60 footnotes. So that's why this case uh, took, took so long. I got sucked into the abyss. I could not get out. <laughs> responding to all of these people as i'm talking to you right now there's a hundred of them looking at some document uh, somewhere in this country from the national archives for, for some hint of a conspiracy someone's writing a book they're coming out one and two every month but finally my editor in new york said vince we're going to press and that was the end of it if he hadn't said that i'd be working now around the clock like i've been for years uh... seventy eighty ninety hours a week responding to all of these kooky theories are, are there criticisms of the Warren Report that you consider legitimate? Well, I, I think uh, 
the Warren report should have gotten more into conspiracy. Uh, they did. I mean, there's no question they examined uh, conspiracy and could not find anything at all. But maybe they should have gone into a little bit more depth on, on conspiracy. Uh, they didn't discuss the all-important um, head snap to the rear. Why? Well, because they knew the shots came from the rear. Why did they know that? Well, the scientific medical evidence showed the president was shot twice. Both bullet wounds are entrance wounds to the back of the president's body. Uh, the first one entered his upper right back, entered the, exited the front of the throat. The other one entered the upper right back of his head and exited the right front of his head. So they knew the shots came from the rear. And for whatever reason, they ignored the uh, head snap to the rear. But that, that's a very, very big issue that's convinced millions of Americans that that shot came from the grassy knoll. But all in all, they did an excellent job. And I can tell you that their uh, investigation was extremely uh, uh, meticulous and, and comprehensive. They're the granddaddy of all investigations, and I genuflect before them. And uh, this book would not have been written without the Warren Commission investigation in this case. Well, I have to confess, sir, I've always been a doubter of the Warren Report, but I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the craziness of many of the contentions made by, by on the assassination, and I've, I've argued with a lot of people in past years. I, I do want to start off here with one of the nuttiest claims. I want you to address this. The issue that some people claim the Zapruder film was altered. Well, the, 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 they never used to believe that. The conspiracy theorists uh, would always claim that the Zapruder film was evidence uh, of a shot from the grassy knoll because of the head snap to the rear. But now they've gotten crazier and crazier and crazier, and they're actually uh, alleging that Abraham Zapruder was a member of the conspiracy to kill President uh, Kennedy. They're also alleging, of course, that the Zapruder film, there's books coming out on it, saying it's a complete hoax. How could it be a complete hoax? If it were a hoax, how would it match up with other films and other photographs? If you make a film that's a hoax or you alter it, well, then you'd have to alter all the other uh, photographs and films that were taken that day in Dealey Plaza because if there was some other film, like the Nix film or the Much More film, and it differed from the Zapruder film, then you would know that the Zapruder film was a hoax. It's just all nonsense, but they will not stop. There's no bottom to the pile in this case, but to, but to say that the Pruder film is a hoax or altered is just, it's, it's just craziness, and I address it in great depth in the book. Well, you're pretty hard on some of the critics, but uh, having met a few of the people, that, such as the one that's putting out that theory, I thought you went pretty light on them. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, I can't resist inserting a quip at this point. One person who you mentioned in your book, they responded, it's 1,600 pages, but if you take out all the stuff about us critics being nuts, I think Vince will be left with a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, fair is fair. Um, the Warren Commission, sir, was troubled by an inability to ascribe a motive to the assassin. The, the brother of the accused, Robert Oswald, was stunned to get a call from Wesley Liebler, who was at that time trying to write up the chapter on that, and he was stuck for a motive. He was, uh, Mr. Oswald was surprised that he was asking him after all the interviews that, um, that had been conducted for the commission. Uh, you addressed that issue of motive with a whole chapter in the book. Um, what do you say to those people who are troubled by Oswald's lack of discernible motive? Well, motive is never an element of the corpus delicti of any crime. Uh, I've put people on death row without knowing their specific uh, motive. Uh, usually I did, but there were those that I didn't. Uh, all I knew is that they had killed the victim, and there was no uh, legal justification uh, for their doing so. Uh, on the issue of, 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 of motive here, no one knows for sure why Oswald killed uh, Kennedy. Uh, even if he were alive today and wanted to tell us, he might not be able to tell us. Uh, 
uh, of all the dynamics that were swirling around in his fevered mind at the moment he did this monstrous act. But, but there are certain pieces, Doug, of circumstantial evidence from which we can draw inferences. Uh, I'll just touch on a couple of them. One is that Oswald had delusions of grandeur. Uh, he viewed himself in a historical light. Uh, his diary, he called uh, the uh, historical diary. A um, squad mate of his said that he uh, that Oswald wanted to do something that 10,000 years from now people would be talking about. His wife, Marina, said that he compared himself with the great historical figures of history whom he read about in, in biographies. So certainly, Doug, this was a fellow who uh, was not trying to cause a... Uh, uh, a ripple, but changed the tide of history. Getting more specific, um, <clears throat> we know that Oswald revered uh, Fidel Castro. Uh, we know that. Uh, and we know he was an ardent supporter of the Cuban Revolution. In fact, in late September, early October, just before the assassination, he was down at the Cuban consulate in Mexico City, desperately trying, trying to get to Cuba. And he was turned down, and he was almost crying, and he was yelling, very, very angry. Uh, certainly, Kennedy's support of the Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, whose objective was to overthrow Castro, that angered uh, uh, Oswald. Also, five days before the assassination, Kennedy, in a major foreign policy speech uh, from Miami, said, uh, well, he all but urged the Cuban people to rise up against Castro and promise, promise you, uh, a prompt U.S. aid uh, if they did. And I agree with the, with the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee that, um, uh, Cas uh, that Oswald's uh, love for Castro and the Cuban revolu Revolution played a part in his motivation to kill Kennedy. Why? Well, he was looking upon Kennedy as an enemy of the Cuban Revolution, and by killing uh, Castro and the Cuban Revolution's enemy, he somehow was furthering uh, the Cuban cause. Now, I, I did come across something else, which I have to say my prosecution of Manson played a role in it. Um, and I gave it to the jury in London, uh, knowing again that, uh, that we don't know for sure why Oswald killed Kennedy. Oswald uh, did not hate President Kennedy. Uh, his wife, Marina, told me that uh, Lee liked Kennedy, she said. Uh, he was in favor of his civil rights uh, bills. Uh, I don't think he loved him, but uh, he respected certain things about him. And, of course, in London, Jerry Spence uh, argued, why in the world would Oswald kill Kennedy when he did not hate him and he even, even liked him? But we do know one thing. He hated the United States of America with a tremendous passion. He wouldn't even let Marina learn uh, 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 English. In any event, how Manson uh, figures into this is that the Manson murders were uh, representative murders. Manson did not know these people whom he was ordering uh, killed. Uh, he didn't know precisely who they were, but he knew they were members of the establishment, and he hated the white establishment. Uh, I'm looking at, so in a sense, they're representative murders. I'm looking at Oswald's diary and preparing for the trial in London, and I see these words. Uh, he says, I've lived under capitalism and communi communism, and I quote, despise the representatives, that's the key word, the representatives 
of both systems. Uh, I despise the representatives of both systems. That word leapt off the page to me perhaps more than the average person because of my background in the Manson case. And I told the jury that uh, we don't know why Oswald killed Kennedy, but um, it's certainly possible that uh, Kennedy uh, to Oswald was the quintessential representative of a society for which he held a grinding uh, contempt, and that when he was shooting at the president, he was shooting at the United States of America. Uh, You asked a very good question there. Doug, I can't give you an exact answer, but I can tell you there's no question that he killed uh, uh, Kennedy, and uh, motive is never an element uh, that has to be proved by a prosecutor. Although uh, juries want to know motive, because the presence of motive is circumstantial evidence of guilt, just like the absence of motive is even stronger circumstantial evidence of uh, of innocence. But it is not necessary to prove motive to get a conviction. I have a quick question I have for you. You mentioned Marina Oswald. Her testimony, of course, is very incriminating to her husband. I, I did once spend some hours with her and found her to be really very unreliable on factual questions. And so I have to ask just sort of briefly, how, how can we trust the things she said when she did say so many crazy things, like that she held her husband captive in the bathroom so he wouldn't shoot Richard Nixon? Yeah, that, that's a little hard to believe. I've been to that bathroom door there, and I don't know if it's changed uh, since then, but the way it is right now, it would have been pretty hard for her to do that. But this was, uh, when I saw it there, it was, uh, I think, in 2000 and, uh, 2006. But, you know, when you look at her original testimony, Doug, uh, she hasn't changed uh, uh, any of that original testimony. She has changed the main thing, but it's not factual. Uh, it's her belief now, and for years she believed, of course, and testified that her husband killed uh, Kennedy. And when I uh, interviewed her, I think it was in uh, 2000, she's been so impregnated with all these conspiracy theories, she now believes that Lee, she calls him Lee, that Lee was framed. Uh, but she has not changed the important things that she testified to the Warren Commission about. Now, you've, you've singled out, it shows that you're a student of the assassination. You singled out one thing that didn't seem to make too much sense, but she was interviewed for several days uh, by the House Select Committee and the Warren Commission, and uh, she has not t- changed any of that testimony. Uh, so I really don't know precisely what you're talking about. She did say that she told some lies to the FBI, not under oath, because she was trying to protect her, pres- uh, her, uh, her husband, but once she was under oath, uh, I don't think she lied, but she is changing her view now as to whether um, her husband was guilty. But, 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 for example, the guy that was with me at the time we uh, interviewed, uh, the time I interviewed her, he just piped in and he said, uh, Marina, did you take the backyard photos? And she said, yes, I did. And he said, well, that's the end of that issue. That's very compelling evidence that people claim that those photos are suspect. When she says she took them, it's very compelling. Yeah, and she uh, was telling me, she said, Lee would never do such a violent act as kill the president. And I said, you know, Marina, and I didn't go there really to, to interview her on the facts because she's been interviewed a thousand times, but she's a historical figure in her own right, uh, derivatively, and I asked her, I said, now, Marina, you say he wouldn't do a violent act like that, but I said, you do admit, do you not, that he tried to kill uh, Major General Edwin Walker, and she said, uh, yes, he did, and I said, how do you know, and she said, well, he told me. So uh, I think she's essentially an honest person. 
she hasn't changed her basic testimony uh, as to what happened here. Uh, for instance, on the night before the uh, killing, that Oswald begged her to come back to her three times, and she said no. And she wrote a letter to the Warren Commission, in a sense, taking on the responsibility for the murder by saying, God, if I had known that he was, what he was going to do the next day, I certainly would have come back. He was saying, I can get this used washing machine. They were very poor. And uh, I've got a job now. He's making $1.25 at the book depository building, and we can get a room in Dallas large enough for the uh, four of us. And uh, she has never changed any of that stuff. Yeah. But she has changed her view as to whether Leah is guilty. One matter that comes up in the case over and over again, uh, the matter of Lee Oswald being impersonated. Uh, let's mention briefly the fact that J. Edgar Hoover did call LBJ the weekend of the assassination. He, he said that the man uh, on the tapes in Mexico City purporting to be Oswald were not the man they had in custody. There's some other FBI memo, memos that tend to confirm that. Um, uh, what do you say to that? Well, I have a photograph of the, of the man whom they thought was Oswald. Uh, he was an Anglo, and uh, Oswald was an Anglo, and they didn't have any photograph of Oswald, but they did have a photograph of this other Anglo, and they just assumed that the one they were talking to when they were talking to Oswald was this Anglo. But like I say in the book, when you're standing in for someone, uh, aren't you supposed to at least resemble him? And this person uh, who, whose photograph was taken outside the Russian embassy uh, in Mexico City bears no resemblance to Lee Harvey Oswald. So it's silly that they'd have someone impersonating him uh, who bears no resemblance to him. So it's, it's just all silly. And the second silly point is if you're going to imitate him or impersonate him, are you going to do it at the very same moment that he's down there too, walking between the Cuban consulate and the Russian embassy? They're both walking back and forth. One's impersonating the other. Aren't you going to run into a situation where someone's going to say, hey, didn't I just tell you 10 minutes ago something? No, it, it's just all nonsense. The book is Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. We're speaking with author Vincent Bugliosi, which we will continue to do after a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We're speaking with best-selling author and former prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi about his latest work, Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Uh, Mr. Bugliosi, and regarding this matter of, of the taping, there is one thing that just a lot of people are, are puzzled over, uh, and I noticed in the book you report that David Phillips, the man at the embassy down there who was responsible for the tapes, told you they were destroyed, yet uh, we know from recent testimony that uh, commissioners or Warren Commission counsels David Slauson and William Coleman said they listened to tapes of Oswald in Mexico City seven months after this alleged destruction. So my question is, how can one not conclude that David Phillips lied to you? Have you read everything that I've written about this? I can't honestly say I've read everything about it, no. Okay, well, uh, look into the end notes. Okay. And, um, uh, the end notes are very important. And Slauson uh, has said that uh, he thinks he may have listened to the tapes. He's not sure at all. This years and years and years ago. Uh, the House Select Committee had a fellow by the name of Lopez, who's a confirmed conspiracy theorist. 
And uh, he went down there to Mexico City and he came up with a report called the Lopez Report. He testified for London, in London as a defense witness. And even the Lopez Report confirms what Phillips told me, that they kept those tapes for about two weeks and they destroyed them. And now we're talking about Lopez, who is a very, very confirmed conspiracy theorist who was employed by the House Select Committee. And his testimony was consistent with what the CIA has said, that they kept those tapes for about two weeks, and then they destroyed them. All right. And let's address what many consider to be the weak link in the Warren, the Warren Commission report, the single bullet theory. It's been argued in the past that no bullet could produce seven wounds. I would like to, to note for your benefit and the listeners that we decided to test that some years ago. So here in the Sacramento area, we have a World War II rifle expert. I went out with him, and we set up a simulation and verified that 6.5-millimeter Carcano rounds can easily punch through muscle, break rib, break a plaster splint, impact high-density foam, and yet emerge almost perfect. But I would just say, in, you know, in summary, that uh, a military-jacketed round was capable of what was alleged. Yeah, you, you've, ra- you've raised two parts of the magic bullet, and they're both, uh, they're both important. You've raised the pristine bullet uh, aspect, the aspect of it. The conspiracy theorists have claimed, uh, how could it do all the damage it did and still be pristine? Well, pristine, I think, means in its original condition, perfect. And in their books, uh, they conveniently do not show uh, the entire bullet. Uh, well, they show the bullet. looks like the entire bullet, but they don't show the base. And as you know, Doug, in my book, I show the base of the bullet. The base of the bullet was badly damaged, so this is not a pristine bullet. Its original weight, I think, was 161 grains. It's now down to 158.6. Uh, and as you point out, this was a fully metal-jacketed, military-type bullet designed to cause a lot of damage to whatever it hits without causing too much damage to itself. And uh, experts at the House Select Committee and the Warren Commission uh, came to the conclusion that that bullet could cause the damage it did without being any more deformed than it was. Now, there's another aspect of the magic bullet that may be even more uh, uh, famous. Uh, than this, and that's that uh, it made right and left turns in midair. And this shows, Doug, as I told the the, the crowd last night, how outrageous uh, and audacious these conspiracy theorists are. They don't only lie when there's documentary evidence to refute it. They literally have the audacity to lie when they know there's photographic evidence, film evidence showing that they're lying. They don't care. Why? Because 99 out of 100 people whom they're uh, targeting their information with don't know the truth, don't have the access to the film or the photos. In their sketches, which I show in Reclaiming History, they put Governor Connolly directly in front of President Kennedy in the sketch, and therefore they say a bullet passing from the right to the left through soft tissue in Kennedy's body after it exits the throat to hit Connolly, they say, it would have had to make a right turn in midair and then a left turn to want to hit Connolly. Um, if you start out with an erroneous premise, Doug, as you well know, uh, everything that follows makes a heck of a lot of sense. The only problem is that it's wrong. Connolly was not seated directly in front of Kennedy in the limousine. We know that. I have a photograph in the book. The Zapruder film shows it. He was seated to Kennedy's left front. He was seated in a jump seat a half a foot in. 
the orientation of Connolly's body vis-a-vis Kennedy's uh, was such that a bullet passing on a straight line through Kennedy's body would have had nowhere else to go but to hit Governor Connolly. Who's got the magic bullet here? If we're to believe the conspiracy theorists, once that magic bullet exited the front of the president's throat, if we're to believe them, apparently it vanished into thin air without a trace, uh, and yet millions of Americans believe uh, what conspiracy theorists want them to believe. They've wrapped that magic bullet around the throat of the Warren Commission and have convinced the majority of Americans that the Warren Commission has a magic bullet. But, Doug, there's only one group here that has a magic bullet, and that's the conspiracy theorists. That bullet, according to them, must have vanished in thin air. Well, I, let, let's talk a little bit about about what what the the photographic evidence would suggest. It's a mistake to try and obviously solve a case using a bit of of uh, a film. But I did have someone locally here that had a a really ex, really good projection system and a really good copy of the film, and we spent some time looking at it and just seeing what you might learn. So I want to take a brief a detour into that if we could. Yeah. And, and, and review the fact that. You know, it's a matter of record that everyone who saw the Zapruder film for the Warren Commission concluded that JFK was injured before he reemerged from behind that sign, and that the governors then hit on screen a second later. And when I say everyone, uh, that would mean, you know, wound experts from the Army's Edgewood Arsenal, FBI agents, Secret Service agents, the governor's surgeons, uh, the president's pathologists, commission staffers. Everyone agrees that when he reemerges from the sign, he's clearly injured. Oh, yes, yes, right. But it, but it was felt that Connolly was then struck later. It was a subject of a Life magazine uh, article in 67, right. etc. Right, right. No one really thought... Uh, until maybe April of 64, that, that, that that's not what happened, until Arlen Specter deduced that based on the timing of the woundings being less than that to work the rifle bolt, they must have been hit by the same slug. Is, 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 that, is that fair? Yeah, I just want to add one thing. Read an end note on Arlen Specter. Arlen okay. Specter has taken full credit for the single bullet theory, and it's so obvious a two-year-old would know about it. And you'll see that Arlen Specter was just one of several that was responsible, but he's the one that took full credit for it. Uh, look under Arlen Specter in the Zapruder film section, and you're going to be shocked to learn that Arlen Specter has been leading people to believe for years that he's the author of the single bullet theory. He is not. But nevertheless, it was it was deduced based on the on a necessity that uh, that if you didn't think that happened, that there had to be two guns, and that right. was not uh, what people wanted. Right. You've concluded in your book that the, what people have come up with, with more recently as an explanation that there was a missed shot at Zapruder frame 160. But again, viewing this really high quality film, it appears that, and I think people can verify this by looking at it on the web, that uh, JFK is smiling and he's waving up to about frame 190. And there's many motions at the film that w- on the film would suggest that that might have been the first shot. Uh, the Secret Service agent turned his head at that moment. A little girl stops running. Zapruder starts jiggling the film. The testimony of Mr. Betzner, Mr. Willis, they all seem to converge on a first shot around 189. But you've placed the shot impact of the single bullet a second later or so when they're both behind the sign. This requires that the governor would have been injured as he reemerged. Nobody sees that. How do you resolve all this? The uh, oak tree, if you're up at the sixth floor window, uh, the oak tree obscures your view of Kennedy and Connolly up until around frame. 207. It's kind of hard to believe, uh, kind of hard to believe that Oswald would shoot through that oak tree when he knew within a split second later he's going to get a clear shot. Now, <laughs> from Zapruder's film, 
uh, from his vantage point, he stopped seeing Kennedy and Connolly at around 207, 208. But from uh, uh, Oswald's standpoint, he starts seeing them very clearly at around 207. To believe a shot around 190, 193, you'd have to believe that he's aiming to kill the President of the United States and he's got this thick oak tree in front of him, which does not make any sense. I've concluded that the shot was fired somewhere between 207 when he gets his first clear shot after the oak tree and 222. Uh, now, why do I say 222? Because uh, at 222, uh, Connolly is emerging from the uh, Stemmons Freeway sign, and the House Select Committee, you know, they had a staff, a tremendous staff of experts, uh, photographic experts, I think 22 of them. They came to the conclusion that there was a stiffening of his upper torso at frame 222, indicating that he'd been shot somewhere between 207 and 222. And then Kennedy at 225 is seen for the first time in this film, and it's obvious he's responding to an external uh, stimulus, a severe external stimulus. So somewhere between 222 and 225, we have evidence on the Zapruder film that they're both responding to, a, to, a, to, to being hit by a bullet. When did that bullet hit them? I don't know. Uh, my guess is that it was somewhere around frame 210. You know, when a layperson hit, hears 210 and 212, they say, Mr. Bagliosi, that's 12 frames. But, you know, what is that 12 frames? Well, that 12 frames is about what? About two-thirds of a second. Uh, very, very brief. But we, we don't know when, this, when the second shot uh, hit. Uh, the first shot, seemingly around 160, because the Zapruder film had just turned on to Elm, and there's all types of witnesses said that's when they heard the first shot. We know when the, when the third shot, of course, was hit. Uh, 313, we, we can see the explosion to the president's head. Let's, let's talk about that. I, I absolutely agree with your contention that the motion that we see, that famous head snap back, is not proof of a shot from the front. Bullets don't move large objects in their flight path, except maybe in Hollywood movies. Tin can, yes. Human body, no. Well, more important than that, I do think that a projectile will push any object it hits in the same direction, at least instantaneously for a moment. It will push that object in the same direction that the projectile is traveling. And that head snap to the rear was seen for the first time uh, on the evening of, uh, uh, I forget the, the date, uh, but it was in 1975. It was in the evening, Good, Good Evening America. It was a show by Geraldo um, uh, Rivera. It was a national network ABC show. And millions upon millions saw the Zapruder film, a pirated Zapruder film for the very first time. And around the time of the headshot, they see this head snap to the rear, and it convinced millions of Americans, understandably so, that the shot had to come from the front because the, the head goes backwards, the law of physics. Uh, and in, in London, in London, Spence showed that segment of the Zapruder film five times. I didn't object. I could have, but I let him, let him have his fun. And he said it looked like uh, the president had been hit by a bat swung by Babe Ruth. And he said, Mr. Bugliosi uh, is trying to convince you folks that what you've seen with your very own eyes, you really did not see. And if I did not have an answer to that, Doug, in London, 
Uh, the verdict almost assuredly would have been not guilty because that would have been a reasonable doubt of guilt. As you know, the, the Dallas jury did come back with a guilty verdict. Yeah. The answer, Doug, is very clear. Uh, you have to look at the individual frames, which I showed the jury in London on a screen. Uh, you cannot see this if you look at the film. In the film, all you see is the head snap to the rear. But if you look at the individual frames, you see a 312. And incidentally, I don't think there's any other book that's ever been published on the assassination that has 312 and 313 in it. You can see this in the Warren Commission volumes, but I don't know of any other book that has this, except Reclaiming History. At 312, the president had, president's head looks okay. Now, let me qualify. There may be another book out there. I can't remember remember any other book that has this. 312, the president's head looks fine. 313, one-eighteenth of a second later, there was 18.3 frames per second in the Fruiter film. And you see the president hit at frame 313. Well, you, you, uh, uh, you see the explosion to the head. And in what direction, Doug, is the president's head pushed at frame 313? not pushed backwards, which would indicate a shot from the grassy knoll, as opposed to a shot from Oswald, who's to the president's right rear, the head is pushed slightly forward, 2.3 inches, indicating what? A shot from the rear where Oswald was. So at the all-important moment of impact, which you cannot see on the film, the all-important moment of impact, frames 312 to 313, president's head is pushed slightly forward from the projectile hitting him in the back of the head. And then, of course, at frames 314 to 321, you see the, uh, the head snap to the rear, eight inches, uh, caused by a neuromuscular reaction. Uh, the doctors say that what that means is that uh, nerve damage to the president's brain caused his back muscles to tighten, which in turn caused his head to snap to the rear. I think the most important thing to talk about is conspiracy. What's her conspiracy in this case? If I can try to summarize billions and billions and billions of words down to a couple minutes, uh, mm -hmm. because that's what people are interested in, uh, more than uh, whether Oswald was guilty. Let me see if I can do that for you. Please. There's no uh, credible evidence, let's underline the word credible, no credible evidence that the CIA or mob or military-industrial complex or any of these groups were behind the assassination. All we have these buffs doing is making a naked speculation. They come up with no evidence at all. I told the jury in London, I said, three people can keep a secret. I said, but only if two are dead. And here we have now, close to 44 years later, not one word, not one syllable has leaked out. Not one. I'm not talking about some nut saying my father... Uh, shot and killed Kennedy from the grassy knoll when the father's in, in prison at the time. I'm talking about credible evidence. No credible evidence has leaked out in close to 44 years, and we know it's almost impossible to keep a secret. Number two, there's no evidence that Oswald had any association with any of these groups believed to be behind the assassination. And Harold Weisberg, one of the great assassination researchers who leaned towards the conspiracy theory, I think it was he who said... You know, the FBI uh, examined and checked out every breath this guy ever breathed from the moment he arrived back from the Soviet Union to the United States on June 13, 1962, to the day of the assassination. They conducted 25,000 interviews. They saw nothing, no connection that he had with any of these groups. Number three, 
Assuming one of these groups wanted to kill the president, I reject it completely out of hand as being silly, the type of thing you see in a Robert Ludlum novel. Uh, but in the book, I don't reject it out of hand. I don't have that luxury. I go in for the first time ever in any of the books, great, great depth, knocking down all these theories. I'm just saying that, personally, uh, it, it's silly on its face. But let's assume that one of these groups said, like the military-industrial complex, uh, you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff sitting around a table with the heads of major corporations, let's murder Kennedy. Let's assume they decided to kill Kennedy. Uh, Oswald would have been, Doug, one of the last people on the face of the earth whom they would have gone to. Why? Well, he was not an expert shot. He was a good shot, but not an expert shot. He had a $12 mail-order rifle, notoriously unreliable, extremely, extremely unstable. I mean... Marina said he'd only be happy uh, uh, on the moon. Here's a guy who defects to the Soviet Union pre-Gorbachev, mind you. Even today, who in the world defects to the Soviet Union? One of the bleakest places on the face of the earth. Just And, and, and when they turn him down, when he wants to become a Soviet citizen, what does he do? Well, you know what he did, Doug. He tried to commit suicide, slashed his wrist. The very type of people that the KGB or the mob or the CIA would want to rely on to commit the biggest murder in American history. It's silly on its face. Now, let me give you the final, the final thought on this. Let's assume again, for the sake of argument, that one of these groups said, yeah, we want to kill Kennedy, and let's try to get Oswald to do it for us, and he goes along with it. Let's see if where that takes us makes any sense at all. After Oswald left the book depository building after shooting Kennedy, Doug, one of two things would have happened. Let me tell you the least likely thing first. The least likely thing is that there would have been a car waiting for him to help him escape down to Ecuador, Mexico, or wherever. Certainly the conspirators would not want their hitman to be apprehended and interrogated by the authorities. That's the least likely thing that would happen. Doug, you know what I'm going to say. You're a very bright guy. The most likely thing that would have happened, and you already know what I'm going to say, if the CIA or mob, blah, 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 military-industrial complex, got Oswald to kill Kennedy for them, you know, you have to know there would have been a car waiting for him to drive him to his death. You have to know that. And yet we know that he's out on the street with $13 in his pocket trying to flag down buses and cabs. That fact alone tells any sensible person there was no conspiracy behind Oswald, even the uh, presidential motorcade that went right below the uh, uh, sixth floor window uh, where Oswald was. That wasn't even determined until November 18th, 1963, four days before the assassination. Does anyone actually believe that the CIA would uh, uh, conspire with Oswald to kill Kennedy within four days of the, Ken of the president coming into Dallas? It's pure moonshine. The final footnote to all of this, Doug, is I find it difficult to speak candidly about reclaiming history without sounding boastful, but the opposite is even worse. The alternative is even worse because people can say, well, then it's just another book on the assassination. But it's not just another book on the assassination, and I think you agree with me on that, Doug. The, the L.A. Times said, finally, someone has put all the pieces together. Reclaiming History is a book for the ages. This is a very special book. I put 21 years of my life into it. I cannot do any better than this book. We've been speaking with Vincent Bugliosi about his book, Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It is surely the most comprehensive book ever written about the case. 
For more information, one can go to reclaiminghistory.com. And I think anyone interested in this case is going to want to have this book. I'd like to say, Vincent Bugliosi, thank you for speaking with us. It's been a great honor. Thanks so much, Doug. It was an honor being on the show. All righty. We're grateful that despite a fatiguing book tour, failing voice, and tight schedule, Mr. Bugliosi gave us over 45 minutes of interview time. We have the utmost respect for Vincent Bugliosi and hope that he can join us again sometime to talk about some of his other works, most especially The Betrayal of America. A person who speaks his mind, even when the tide of politics is running against him, is someone to be admired. And in the wake of election 2000, damned few figures set out to express outrage over the Supreme Court voting along party lines to appoint George W. Bush president. Mr. Bugliosi is quite correct to note that some of what has been said about the assassination has come from charlatans. This correspondent has argued with some of these folks who claim, for example, that conspirators have altered the Zapruder film. I'm here to tell you that disreputable is too kind a description for many of them. This is not the same, of course, as saying that all the critics are irresponsible conspiracy theorists. We will, in the weeks to come, allow several prominent Warren critics to make brief comments about today's talk. A special thanks goes out to Franz Kassing for setting us up with the good people at W.W. W. Norton and Company, Inc., who published Reclaiming History. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We received special assistance in the recording of today's show from KQED Studios in San Francisco. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>